an artifact from a notorious event in Stark County's past, recently surfaced on eBay. It's a document, printed 185 years ago in old German type. The paper is velvety and fragile with age, and some of the pages are water-stained. Santa and Matthew Shook of Worcester had no idea what the papers were when they brought them home from an estate sale in Ashland. Neither of the Shooks read German, but Santa deciphered a few words. Stark County, 1833, and a name. Christian Bachtel. A college professor helped translate other portions. And then the Shooks knew what they had. A copy of the life story and confession of the first murderer in Stark County. As told by the man himself before his hanging. The first and only truly public execution in Canton. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the Canton Repository's 200-year-old archive. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. In this episode, we'll explore the tragic case of Christian and Mary Bachtel, and trace its reverberations down to the present. And before anyone jumps up and down about Bachtel not being the only public execution in Canton, just wait. We'll get to that later in the episode. But first, part one, a most horrid murder. On the morning of April 2nd, 1833, Margaret Henry walks the quarter mile to the home of her sister, Mary Bachtel. The sisters and their families live in the settlement of Congress Furnace, a collection of homes near an iron smelter along the Nimishillen Creek. Today the area is called North Industry. Margaret gets to Mary's home and can tell something is wrong. Mary's three children, ages six, four, and two, are standing in front of the door. The house is silent. Their father, Christian, is gone. Margaret enters the home. What she finds shocks the community. We have this week to record a most horrid murder and the first ever committed in the county. The Ohio Repository, April 5th, 1833. Mary has been killed in her bed. Her skull is cracked and one of her ears is nearly cut off, apparently by an axe. Suspicion falls on Mary's 30-year-old husband, Christian. Christian Bachtel is born in Frederick County, Maryland in 1803 and moves to Congress Furnace in 1826. On April 13th of that year, he marries 14-year-old Mary Henry. Christian farms and works in distilleries and as a day laborer. Mary gives birth to a son, Wilhelm, followed by two daughters, Marianne and Caroline. Whether Mary knows it, this isn't Bachtel's first family. When he was 18, he lived with, but never married, a woman whose husband had abandoned her. Bachtel and the woman, Betsy Morrison, were both addicted to intoxication, Christian says later. Their child died the day it was born, and Christian left Betsy soon after ending two unhappy years. 
His marriage to Mary seems to have a better start. But when Christian doesn't have much to do, he drinks. A lot. By the winter of 1832 and into 1833, he's drinking a quart of whiskey a day as creditors hound him to pay his debts. Mary tries to get him to sober up, to no avail. A month before the murder, in desperation, Christian walks into a field, planning to hang himself. It's a turning point. I had gone some distance when the thought suddenly suggested itself, unbidden, that my wife was the cause of my misery, and that she, not I, ought to die. Christian Bachtel. Over the next month, he mulls the idea of killing Mary. On April 1st, he, Mary, and their children go to the home of Mary's mother. It's also Mary's birthday. Christian works with his in-laws. They seem sour towards him, probably because he's been drinking. But little was said by them, and as for me, I meditated murder. Christian Bachtel. Christian and Mary argue on the way home, and he decides to test her feelings for him. If she fails, he will kill her. Christian asks Mary to make him a pair of pantaloons. She says no. He wants to have sex with her. Again, she says no. Christian paces in the firelight. Mary settles into bed with their youngest, Caroline, next to her. Mary's back is turned when Christian strikes. Part 2. When we come back. Part 2. Drunk or Deranged? The authorities catch Christian near Worcester two days after the murder. He goes on trial September 30th at the original Brick Courthouse on Canton's Town Square. Kim Kenny, executive director of the McKinley Museum, has researched Bachtel's case for her forthcoming book, Murder and Mayhem in Stark County. This was the first significant crime that had happened in Stark County. Um, Canton was founded in 1805, and Stark County was founded in 1809, so we had a good long run till 1833 before we had anything like this happen. Prosecutors D.A. Starkweather, a future congressman, and Dwight Jarvis call more than a dozen witnesses. On the morning of April 2nd, one of my hands came to me and said defendant's wife was dead. I went over to see. When I got there, saw her mother. She said Mary is gone, was pulling off the bedclothes, and said she was yet warm. I felt the body. It was not warm, neither was it altogether cold. There was much blood in the bed. Thomas Worley, neighbor. He was a kind and affectionate husband, except till a few months before the murder. He accused her of infidelity in my presence. She said she cared not what he said, for there was one above who knew it was not so. Barbara Henry, Mary's mother. I saw the defendant on the 3rd of April, eight or nine miles north of Worcester, on the road to Waynesburg in Wayne County. I was in pursuit of him. He confessed to us immediately that he killed his wife and said he was glad of it. Said that he had asked her for a favor in bed the night of the murder, and she refused him. Asked her three times, and she refused. He offered her 37 and a half cents, 
and she still refused. Warner Richards. He said he gave her a stroke with his fist. He went to the fire and she gave a moan. He then went back and struck her with his fist again. He then took the child from her breast and put it with the other children. I asked him the cause of killing her. He said he had caught Ezra Johns with her two or three times. He had in the daytime looked through the window and saw them on the bed together. Caught them afterward in the stable. I told him I doubted his story about Johns and his wife. That habitual drunkards were apt to get jealous of their wives. He said he was sorry he had not had a chance to kill Johns also. George Dunbar, Justice of the Peace. I was one of the inquest held over the body. Saw the wound. It was about two and a half inches in length from two to two and a half inches in depth. John Saxton, publisher, The Ohio Repository. I should think it impossible to inflict a wound as described with the fist. Such a wound must cause immediate death. Dr. Alfred Haycock. A diagonal blow with an axe might produce the wound as described. Dr. Robert Estep. I saw no appearance of derangement in defendant the day before the murder when he worked at our house. Margaret Henry, Mary's sister. Defense attorneys John Harris and Orlando Metcalf try to paint Christian Bachtel as mentally ill. A man came into my store the morning of the 2nd of April. He looked strangely. I'm not sure defendant is the same person. I thought from his manner he was crazy. He asked for whiskey. I told him I had none. James Clark, merchant. Had a conversation with deceased at her house three or four weeks before the murder. She said defendant drank hard and did not work well as usual, but got along tolerably well. I asked if she was afraid of him. She said she was not. Lena Bachtel, Christian sister. I've seen defendant when I thought him deranged once upwards of a year ago, but thought he had been drinking. Defendant always kept liquor with him, said he could not work without it. Jacob Loop. I consider him a quiet, peaceable man. His mother has been deranged several years. Christopher Smith, distiller. The doctors testify about monomania, a supposed type of partial insanity. A monomaniac may have correct perceptions and deranged judgments, or the reverse. It is generally temporary and comes on by fits. Mania is frequently hereditary and would usually, if so, appear in the subject at about the same age it did in the ancestor. Drinking liquor might excite the disease. Dr. Robert Estep. In monomania, the subject is deranged on one or more subjects, uh, generally one. Jealousy is frequently the insane thought in monomania. Monomania is not hereditary. The books do not say that liquor has a tendency to produce it. Dr. Haycock. The jury gets the case on the trial's second day and deliberates four hours before finding Bactel guilty of murder in the first degree. When the verdict was pronounced, not a muscle played, not a shade passed over his countenance, and even while he was receiving his sentence, impressive as it was, his appearance indicated either an almost total imbecility or a hearty indifference. The Ohio Repository, 1833. Judge Lane hands down the expected sentence. You shall be taken hence to the common jail and from thence on Friday, the 22nd day of November next, between the hours of 10 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon, you are to be taken to the place of execution, and there you shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may God Almighty have mercy on your soul. 
Lee Sinclair is a retired Stark County Common Pleas judge. He still handles cases by appointment and for years has taught other judges how to handle death penalty cases. I sent him the newspaper accounts of Bactel's trial to see what he thought of the case. Sinclair says a case like Bactel's probably wouldn't lead to a death sentence today. And if it did, it wouldn't be carried out so quickly. Appeals go on for years. Two Stark County men sentenced to die in the mid-1980s are still on death row. And yet, the facts of Bactel's case follow an all-too-familiar pattern, Sinclair says. Uh, It's just really interesting how things change, but yet they don't change all that much. uh, Because as we know today, the fuel that runs the criminal justice system is uh, substance abuse. And in that case, uh, back in 1833, it was alcohol abuse. Part 3, when we come back. Part 3, Christian Bachtel, your time has come. Visitors swarmed Canton the day before Bachtel's execution. They packed the taverns and stables and gambling halls. Those who can't find a place to stay spend the night outdoors. The repository reports some 40,000 people come to Canton to watch Bactyl swing. Other accounts say the crowd is half that size. By comparison, 22,000 people attended the Hall of Fame enshrinement last year. And back in 1833, only 27,000 people live in Stark County. Kenny says public hangings are a form of entertainment at this time. You know, you're talking not too long after people had actually packed a picnic during the Revolutionary War to go watch the fighting. So, you know, if you're thinking of the experience of what people are doing for entertainment in 1833, you know, there's not a lot of options. So something like this would be very sensational and um, salacious. You'd want to kind of be a part of it because it's happening in your town. But not everyone is there. The Ohio Repository makes a point of not attending the execution. In giving an account of this transaction, we are obliged to avail ourselves of the information of others who were present, not having witnessed it ourselves, being little inclined to look upon a scene so mortifying and degrading to human nature. Ohio Repository, November 29, 1833. By sunup, so many spectators have crowded around the jail on the southwest corner of what is now Cleveland Avenue and 4th Street Southwest that soldiers with bayonets and cavalry have to force them back. Backel emerges from the stone and brick jail at 11 o'clock with two ministers, one a German Presbyterian, the other a Methodist. Clergymen of other denominations follow, as do some of Backel's relatives and the two doctors who will declare him dead. Backel wears a shroud and sings the hymn Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Some in the crowd join him.
guards form a square around Bactol and walk him to the commons near what is now 6th Street Northeast and Rex Avenue. It's a cold and windy day with snow in the air. Bactel follows a horse-drawn wagon carrying his coffin up Market Avenue to Tuscarawa Street, then to Walnut Avenue and to the Commons. The half-mile trip takes 30 minutes because the crowd is so dense. Spectators watch from the roofs of nearby buildings or sit on fence rails borrowed as makeshift seats. When Bactel reaches the scaffold, he takes a seat and the ministers start to preach. The Methodist goes first with a prayer and a reading from the Gospel of Luke. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Then the Presbyterian preaches in German and Bachtel sings a hymn. This goes on till two in the afternoon and the court sentence says Bachtel has to be dead by three o'clock. After the sermons, Bactel says goodbye to his friends, embraces Sheriff George Webb, and climbs the scaffold at a quarter past two. He warns the crowd about the dangers of drink and says he is willing to die. The sheriff secures Bactel's hands behind his back, ties his ankles together, slips the rope over his head, and shrouds his face. Then Bactel stands on the scaffold and prays for the next 20 minutes while Sheriff Webb counts down, first in increments of five. Christian Bechtel has 15 minutes to live. Sinner on the cross, sir. Christian Bechtel has 10 minutes to live. Christian Bechtel has five minutes to live. Then, with every minute, Christian Bachtel has two minutes to live. Christian Bachtel has one minute to live. Until finally. Christian Bachtel, your time is up. May God Almighty have mercy on your soul. The crowd shivers. Women faint. Bactel draws up his legs several times as he dangles from the rope. He hangs for about 20 minutes. When the doctors are satisfied that he's dead, Bactel's brother or friends, the stories vary, take his body for burial. Eyewitness John Danner, who is 10 years old when Bactel is executed, recalls the hanging 70 years later. To see the wagon with the coffin and condemned man taken to the place of execution was a sight I shall never forget and do not want to see again. John Danner, Stark County Democrat, February 10th, 1903. The crowd departs after Bactel's corpse is cut down. A certain George Toffler has had the forethought to buy a good length of rope similar to that used in the hanging and sell souvenir pieces. By his death, the requisitions of violated law have been satisfied but there still remains ample scope for reflection to the moralist and the civilian, and we hope the subject of capital punishment may receive the attention it merits from our legislators. Ohio Repository, November 29, 1833. Did John Saxton, the repository's publisher, oppose all capital punishment or just public hangings? 
did his role as a witness in the case weigh on his mind? We don't know. But state lawmakers debate the appropriateness of public execution the following year. Part 4, when we come back. Part 4, How I Murdered Your Mother There would be other executions in Stark County, but none would be as public as Bactel's. In 1880, three teens are hanged at the same time, and three years later, convicted killer George McMillan is hanged. But those executions take place before audiences inside the jail. In a twist of history, McMillan's is the last execution in Stark County. Like Bactel, he killed his wife. There's still a lot we don't know about Mary's murder. A week before he hangs, Bactel gives his version of the story to a lawyer named Hiram Griswold, who would later become a judge and defend the radical abolitionist John Brown after his raid on Harper's Ferry. The repository publishes the life and confession of Christian Bactel, alongside its story on the hanging. The publisher of Canton's German newspaper prints a similar account. In his account, Bactel says his wife didn't cheat on him. He confesses to drinking too much. He says he hit Mary with an axe handle rather than an axe. He says she didn't know he was going to hit her the first time and that he hit her a second time as an act of mercy. The jury in the newspapers got the story right, he says. I ask not of the world its charity. I ask not its commiseration, its sympathy. I merit its just condemnation, its unmitigated reprobation. I die in peace with all mankind, and if prayer and unfeigned penitence are of avail, hope to die in peace with my God, Christian Bactel. Copies of the confession are sold for the benefit of the Bactel children. At least one copy is still out there, for sale on eBay. We don't know where Mary and Christian are buried, but we do know what happened to their oldest and youngest children. About ten years ago, Joyce Scott Robinson, a retired teacher in Modesto, California, was researching her family tree when she found the death certificate of her fourth great-grandfather, Wilhelm Bachtel, who died in 1916, the certificate listed his father as Christian Bachtel, his mother, Mary Henry. Robinson, who was born in Akron, had never heard of Christian and Mary, or the murder. Well, it was kind of a shock, but because um, there's no one else in my line that has done anything anywhere near that, I mean, I felt... Morally, mostly curious about who raised three orphan children. And that's why I went, came back to Ohio and went to the courthouse to see what I could find on guardianship and went, was at the library trying to find records. My sisters found it interesting. My brother couldn't care less about genealogy. <laughs> she has traced Caroline and her descendants to Indiana, but doesn't know what happened to Marianne, the middle child. I knew nothing about my lines when I started out. So I, 
and I, and I have lots of mysteries I still haven't solved. Obviously, the family did not discuss this. Mary Bactel, the victim, tends to get lost in retellings of this story, mostly because we don't know much about her. Why did she marry Christian? What was their life like together before the murder? Kim Kenny. This whole story, um, it's very tragic. And, you know, I, I, I don't think... Mary certainly was unhappy, but she didn't know her life was in danger. There's even one account where he says, you know, I took the axe handle and I moved it right in front of her. And either she didn't see it or she didn't care. And I don't think she realized how out of control um, the situation had become. She was sort of mired down and he's not a good husband. He's drinking. He's, you know, I'm unhappy. But I, I never got the sense that she was afraid for her life. She didn't tell her family that she was. So Thankfully, you know, hopefully we can believe what he said, that she was asleep and that she literally didn't know what happened to her. Um, but the real tragedy would have been the children. The murder also marks the end of Canton's time as a bucolic, semi-frontier town. I almost feel like this was a beginning of this kind of, not a crime wave, but that crime was going to, to be here and it was going to kind of become part of the fabric of, of our lives. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Rep Morgue. You can learn more about this story and find other episodes at cantonrep.com. Songs used in this episode included Blind by Maidon, Dead from the Beginning, Alive Till the End by Dr. Turtle, Snowdrop by Kevin McLeod, Appalachian Coal Mines by Midair Machine, Relent by Kevin McLeod, and Voices of Canton performed the hymn Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Special thanks also to our voice talent for this episode. Rich DeRosier, Tim Botus, Ed Pritchard, Lori Steinick, Mike Baelish, Todd Porter, Dave Manley, Robert Wang, Allison Mattis, Dan Kane, Jessica Holbrook, Ed Belint, Dave Serino, Chris Bevan, Dwight Keir, and Derek Hoover.